You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, well, it is great to see today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20, and then it would probably be helpful for you if you went ahead and put in a little marker for Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 25. It would be helpful for you to have that um, where it would be easy access. So Exodus 20 is where we're starting. And while you're turning there, let me kind of lead into this. Um, one, by reminding you that we are in a, the middle of a set of sermons through the Ten Commandments. Um, and we have found ourselves in commandment number six. So that's the one we're going to be uh, working through today. And let me lead into commandment number six uh, with this. Post-Genesis chapter three, hurt is a universal human experience. Once our first parents, you know, ate the forbidden fruit, sin is introduced into the world, hurt is known by all of us. There's not one of us that escapes the feeling of hurt. People sin against you, and you have sinned against people, right? People can just be flat out mean, and you've been mean to other people. People can unintentionally offend you, and and you have done your share of unintentionally offending others. And all of that makes up hurt. Rightful, you know, an unintentional sort of harm's done to you. Intentional harm's done to you. Some is sin, some is not sin. But you boil all of that down and it's hurt. And that hurt is a universal human experience. And that hurt, the, the exposure to that hurt, it starts really early for all of us. I, I was talking with a family this last week and we were just laughing about, or not laughing, kind of crying and laughing about um, how quickly depravity starts in all of us. And if you want to see depravity, just a, a terribly beautiful picture of it, all of our sinfulness on display, just go to an elementary school playground. That is a dog-eat-dog world, isn't it? I mean, I just think back about my elementary school days, and I did a lot of the eating, and I got ate a couple of times too. I mean, that is a tough world. You can't be married without knowing the feeling of hurt. You know, he or she says this, they do this, but it just, there's times when it just hurts. You can't be married without knowing that feeling. You can't live in a workplace and be in a workplace without experiencing hurt. It's just going to happen. Unintentionally, intentionally, everything, all the above, it, there's just going to be moments when you get hurt in those things. But work is just going to be full of that for you. You can't have friendships without periodically being hurt in your friendships. It is just part of being friends with fallen people. There's going to be moments where you experience great joy with other people, and there's going to, going to be moments where you experience great pain at the hands of people, namely your friends. Hurt is a universal human experience, and some hurt is not just kind of the run-of-the-mill hurt that we all experience. Some of it goes much deeper than that. Just ask the spouse who finds their husband or wife walking out on them. That, that is deep, deep hurt. I was reading a story this last week of some of just the ISIS whatnot over in the Middle East. And it was uh, the story of a 17-year-old girl who their village got overrun and, and overtaken by um, ISIS soldiers. And the next thing that happened after their village was captured is they lined all the men up. If you were over 14 years of age, you were instantly killed. You were executed if you were a man. And then they lined all of the ladies up. From old to young, they divided them into two groups, one they deemed pretty, one they deemed not pretty, and, uh, and then they sold them as sex slaves. That is not run-of-the-mill hurt. That is hurt on a grand scale. Jessica Wiseman is on our staff. She also does some counseling for us, and 
She has a 90-something-year-old grandma who is also a Jew who survived the Holocaust, although much of her family didn't. That is hurt on a grand scale. That, that is big, big hurt. Um, you could ask any of our African-American friends, especially those who are older, they're just 60 years removed from the degrading reality of forced segregation. That is hurt on a grand scale. Now, here's what this passage is forcing us toward. Here's what it's beginning to ask us. This is the question that this passage is going to pose to us. is what in the world are we going to do with the hurt that we experience? If it's a universal human experience, if all of us have known hurt, all of us will deal with hurt, all of us are going to experience more hurt. If that is true, what are we to do with that sort of hurt? What are we to do with that? Now, I'm going to give you two broad categories of, I think, our responses to hurt. There's two different ways that we're going to respond to the hurt that we experience. And here is the first way we're going to respond to hurt. You might call this like a response of the flesh. It's that default reaction in the human heart that says, oh, you hurt me? All right. It's about to come on you twofold. You're about to get that hurt times about two. And you don't have to read very far forward in the biblical narrative to see that play out. Genesis 3, sin is introduced into the world. Genesis 4, you get our first parents, Adam and Eve, two of their boys, Cain and Abel. They're bringing sacrifices to God, and Cain, his, his sacrifice is not acceptable to God. God is not pleased with his sacrifice. And in that moment of hurt, what does Cain do? The Bible says he rises up against his brother and he kills, he murders his brother in cold blood. You, you do not have to turn very far in the biblical narrative to see hurt come out in that fleshly sort of a place. For that response to come totally out of the flesh, that part of us that is deformed and distorted by sin. You see that very early on. And if you keep reading forward in the Bible, you see that little episode on repeat throughout the Bible. Sometimes it comes out in cold-blooded murder. Sometimes it comes out through gossip. Sometimes it comes out through slander. But you can just know that little bitterness and resentment that comes when we get hurt, it comes out in a million ways in the biblical text. That's one way we can respond to hurt. That, that responding from that place of the flesh, that deformed and distorted part of us. But there is another way we can respond to the hurt that we receive. And if one, if one way of responding is out of the flesh, the other way of responding is, is out of the spirit in us, out of that redeemed part of us, that, that part of us that has been made new by Jesus. And if you want to see the most succinct place in the Bible that describes how we are to respond to the hurt that we get, the hurt that we experience, the hurt that we receive, how we're to respond to that, Exodus 20, verse 13 is the place. It is the most succinct place. It's four words in the English, your, your English translation. It is two words in the Hebrew. It's the most succinct place to show here is what it looks like to respond in the spirit to the hurt that we have received. Exodus 20, verse 13 says this. You shall not murder. Now, my assumptions when we hear that, most of us in the room think, man, we finally got to one of the commandments that I'm all right in. We, we finally arrived there. Um, here's the problem. It's like all the commandments. Upon first glance, a lot of the commandments make you feel like, well, well maybe I'm good on this one. But then when you take a second look and you begin to think it through, you begin to realize there's not one of these commandments that leave us unscathed. There's not one of them that leave us untouched in the room. And I think you're going to find that with this one. So here's what I want to spend a few minutes doing this morning. I want to spend some time with you thinking the sixth commandment through. 
What does it mean when, when the Lord is saying, you shall not murder? I'm gonna come at this from a couple different angles, and here's where I wanna start. The command clarified. Okay, so what, what is the core kind of issues that this commandment is dealing with? When the Lord is saying, you shall not murder, what is he talking about in this commandment? And I, I'm gonna to try to give some, some substance to this through four different kind of, kind of angles and from four different places that I hope will bring enough clarity for us to, to see the sort of robust, rich commandment that we have here. So I'm gonna start on the, the prohibition side, the negative side. Like this, the commandment is framed in a negative way. You should not do these things. So let me kind of work through some of the things this commandment is saying you should not do. And I wanna end with giving you one that, that it's saying you should do. So in, in clarifying the command, here are four statements that I think will help us. First of all, it is saying this, don't kill with your hands. Don't kill with your hands. So we're, we're talking about with your hands, physically ki- killing another human being. And it's saying, don't do that. Okay, now, if you look at your translation, if you've got a modern translation, so if it's, if it's a translation that was done over the last 20 or 30 years, you're gonna find it saying, you shall not murder. If you have a King James Bible, you're gonna find it saying, you shall not kill. Now, here's the problem. The King James Bible has kind of put the, the Bible into the English language, and it is framed the way a lot of us think about things. And so we need to answer the question, is it you shall not murder, or is it you shall not kill? Those things mean two different things. It leads us in two different directions. So we need to do some work on that. So, so which is it? You shall not murder, you shall not kill. A couple of things that will help us make sense of that question. First of all, the Hebrew language has eight words for kill. Eight words that it could use to, to say kill. And this particular word is chosen very carefully in this context. This word that's used in Exodus 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 13, this word is never used in the legal system, like killings have to take place there, and it's never used in the military sort of a sense of killing that that is taking place in the middle of a war. It's never used in those two contexts. This word is never used, there's other words for that, but they didn't use this one. This word was never used in the context of hunting and killing animals. There was other words for kill that were used in those contexts, but it was never this word used in that context. Now, in addition to that, there are times in the Old Testament and the New where the Bible is not only sanctioning, but commanding for for there to be killing. So, So we have to come to grips with there are times when the Bible is saying people should die, people should be killed. So now you put that, and let me just give a couple of those illustrations. Um, Genesis 9, verse 6 is one of those illustrations of where the Bible is saying this should happen. There should be a killing that goes on here. Uh, Genesis uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 says like this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That there is a clear, like God is speaking very clearly here, that when a man takes another person's life unlawfully, that's going to be a huge problem that would require the life of that man. Um, If you look in the Old Testament, there are 18 offenses that would be capital offenses. In other words, you do these things, death is the punishment for that. There's 18 of those, at least 18 of those in the Old Testament. So you put all that together, and here would be my summation of this commandment. What, What is the Lord saying here? I think he's saying this. This commandment does not prohibit all killing. It prohibits the unlawful killing of human beings. Not all killing, but unlawful killing. Now, okay, so that would mean that I would advocate that that you shall not murder is the appropriate translation. But that still, um, you know, 
poses a lot of other questions that we need to work through. And I want to think these through with you really briefly here this morning. So if that's true, if it's you shall not murder, what sort of killings are lawful and what sort of killings are not lawful? Where is the dividing line between those two things? What would be a lawful killing? What would be considered murder in the Bible? And let me just start on the, on the negative side. What would, be, what would be prohibited in this commandment? So when you and I hear the word murder, most of us in the room instantly think premeditated and intentional sort of deliberate killing of another human being that's unlawful. Okay, so that would definitely be a part of this commandment. It definitely, this commandment, you shall not murder, covers that. The premeditated, intentional killing of another human being in an unlawful way. That definitely is, is here. But this commandment covers a lot more ground than just that sort of killing. It, it prohibits a lot more than just that. So it would also prohibit voluntary manslaughter. So that is intentional killing, but it's not premeditated. That's just in a moment of rage, that person's gotta die. It's not premeditated, but you're intentionally killing someone unlawfully. It would cover that, it would prohibit that. It would also prohibit involuntary manslaughter or like reckless homicide. You're drunk, you're driving a car, you run through a red light, you slam into a car full of people and kill people in that car. It would prohibit that. That would be a breaking of this commandment. It would also entail negligent homicide. So in other words, you have not done the proper work in protecting people around you from obvious harms. So as one illustration of this, Exodus 21 verses 28 and 29 um, illustrate this. And here's the situation it sets up to, to clarify this negligent homicide falling under this commandment. It says, if you are a person who, you own an ox, and that ox is crazy, and it gores someone to death. Upon first offense, the ox needs to die, but if you're the owner of the ox, you don't have to die. You're not liable for that. But if you know you have a crazy ox that gores people, and it's already gored one person, and now it's gored another person, it's not just the ox that's got to die, it's you that's got to die too. It's just not taking proper care for, for what you're entrusted with. Not, it's just being negligent. It's allowing things that could really, really harm people to the point of death to, to exist and for no protection to be around it, and someone dies. It, that would be covered in, in this commandment, uh, you know, prohibited in this commandment. As well, suicide would be prohibited in this commandment. Assisted suicide would be prohibited by this commandment. Abortion would be prohibited by this commandment. All of those things would fall under a breaking of the sixth commandment. Now, let me really, really briefly, we could spend all of our time on this, and I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna resist the urge this morning to do that. Let me just illustrate real briefly what, is, what sort of killings would be lawful, okay? What would be on the side of, an, like, biblically a sanctioned or a lawful sort of killing. A couple of them here. Um, Self-defense would be one. Exodus 22, verse 2 would show that. Capital punishment would be one. We mentioned this a second ago. There was 18 capital offenses in the Old Testament. Romans 13 in the New Testament clearly gives ground um, and a responsibility and a right for the, for the government to bear the sword. Um, and lastly, just war would also be one that would be in the context of a lawful killing. Now, in Christian history, there has been much thought giving to what makes a war just. And there's been six kind of reasons, everything from a noble cause to a legitimate authority who is waging war to it being a defensive act, not an offensive act. All of those sorts of things are, are kind of embedded into that. But when it comes to just war, we all need to come to grips with, there has never been one war that is simple in that. It is complicated and messy to come to those sort of decisions. And that's why we all need to be praying for our government leaders in that. That is messy, messy stuff. 
So those would be some of the, re- some of the sort of killings that would be sanctioned or lawful in the Bible. So one area that this commandment is covering is killing with the hands. And it's saying, it's prohibiting you killing with your hands out of revenge to punish someone. It's saying no to that. N- no to that. That would all be prohibited and that would all be a breaking of the sixth commandment. But it's not just killing of your hands that this commandment touches and addresses. It gets much wider than that. It's not just killing with your hands that it prohibits. It's killing with your words that it prohibits. Now, this is where we need to remember the rule of categories when we're thinking about the Ten Commandments. A few weeks ago, we were dealing with the commandment of honor your father and your mother. And we talked about the rule of categories and what it does to that commandment. That it shows us that, you know, that Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother, is not just dealing with a relationship in our life. It is dealing with every relationship where there is authority and submission embedded into it. That fifth commandment applies not just to how a son or daughter responds to their parents. It also applies to how an employee responds to their boss. It also applies to how a member in a church would respond to their authority, church leaders in their life. It would um, definitely get how kids respond to parents. It would get how wives respond to husbands. It's getting into every relationship. This is the rule of categories. It gets into every relationship where submission and authority are dealt with. Now, in the same way, when you deal with commandment number six, it's not just saying there is a narrow sense of how you can murder. It's saying that in every way you can murder a person, it applies. In other words, you, you you can no doubt murder a person with a knife. You can kill a person with a gun, but you can just as quickly kill a person with your words. Now, Solomon picks up on this, and in Proverbs 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 18, Solomon says this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust. That words, when they're not redeemed, have a way of turning into a weapon where you jab it right into the life of another person. That words can be used like that. Harsh words, sarcastic words, demeaning words, critical words, hateful words. Words that just don't have redemptive grace in them. They can turn into sword thrusts and literally take the life out of people. I've been in pastoral ministry now for about 15 years. And it would be no stretch to say that I think probably the number one way that churches, just a gospel culture is ruined in churches is by words. One of the primary ways that a gospel culture is ripped out of a church is through words, unredeemed words, harsh words, critical words, slandering words, gossip. And here's the the thing about words. Gossip, slander, unredeemed words are so culturally acceptable. It's so normal that we can be doing it without ever realizing we're doing it. This is what makes it so hard. That, that it, it, it's such the culture we're in that we can't see it. We can't see that our words are ripping people to shreds. Now, this is the reason that Paul in Galatians 5.15 warns us. He says, if you bite and devour one another, be careful that you're not consumed. He's saying this is, this is one of the ways that a church can just implode on itself. Is there's no grace extended with our words. Someone hurts me and my in, like, reflexive response is, I'm going to hurt back. I'm not going to go physically murder them. I'm going to take words, though, and slander their reputation. 
When their name comes up in conversation, I'm gonna make sure people know my beef about them. It's that sort of thing. Can totally rip a gospel culture right out of a church. So you can also kill with your words. It's a prohibition saying don't kill with your words, not just with your hands, but also with your words. And thirdly, it's not just a don't kill with your hands. It's not just prohibiting don't kill with your words. It's also, and this is where it's gonna like kick down the front door of our heart and climb right in and have a talk with us. It's saying don't kill with your heart. Don't kill with your heart. And this is where Matthew 5 is helpful for us. This is gonna be up on the screen for us. This is Jesus giving clarity to, to the sort of territory and the reach of the sixth commandment. When he's interpreting the sixth commandment, he says this. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now he is about to crawl into our hearts. He's about to show us that keeping the sixth commandment is not just an issue of external actions. It's not just a hands and, and, and words issue. It is all the way down in our hearts. Verse 22, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, now let's clarify. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul makes it clear that there is a, there is a righteous anger that is not sinful. Jesus here is not talking about a righteous anger. He is talking about an unrighteous anger. He's talking about that anger that begins to sit in us, that begins to swell in us. That, that distaste that turns into like this dislike that turns into to envy and jealousy. He's saying that is of the same substance as murder. He's saying that anger that is unchecked in you, that swells in you, that's simmering in you, that hate that it produces in you, that is of the same substance of murder. That, that anger is murder in the acorn you know, form. That's what that is. That anger is that. And unchecked, this is where it leads. Now, let's just make you know, this distinction that anger is not the same as murder in a, in a quantitative sense. At the end of the day, I would rather you be angry with me any day over murder me, right? We're all clear there. I'm good for that any day of the week. So it's, in a quantitative sense, it's different. But in a qualitative sense, Jesus is saying it's the same. It's made of the same substance. This is the acorn form. This is the full-blown, mature form of this. And he's saying it's all sin. That's the point. It's all a breaking of the fifth commandment or the sixth commandment. It's all running right against the grain of what God is calling us to in the sixth commandment. He is showing us just how deep murder goes in us. It's not just your hands. It's not just your words. Murder goes all the way into your heart and it starts with anger. And he's saying, if you're guilty there, you're guilty of it all. That, that's the heart of the sixth commandment. It is what's happening in your heart toward other people. I, do you just have other people that, you, that you're just envious of, you're jealous of? There's just a simmering bitterness and resentment. He's saying that's the issue. That's the heart of this commandment. It goes all the way down into that. Now, let me jump to the positive side of this commandment. If that's the negative side, this is the, you shouldn't do this part. You shouldn't do these things of the sixth commandment. What is the sixth commandment actually calling us to do? Like every commandment has two sides. There's a negative, don't do these things. And there's a pro or a positive, you should do these things. So what is the other side of this commandment? Simply put, I, I would call the other side of this commandment, the positive side, I would verbalize it like this. 
The sixth commandment is a call to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a call toward that. It's an invitation to come into that, to step into loving your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to the Heidelberg Catechism describe this. The Heidelberg Catechism was written several hundred years ago, and it does a great job of working through the Ten Commandments. It, gives, it dedicates three questions and answers to the Sixth Commandment. And here's the third question addressing the Sixth Commandment. Question 107. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? In other words, is it okay just to say, listen, here's, here's what I'm going to do to keep the Sixth Commandment. I want to kill that guy, but I'm just not going to kill him. I'm going to let him live. Is that enough, it's saying? Is that, is that keeping the sixth commandment? Response, no, that is not keeping the sixth commandment. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and listen to this last phrase, and to do good even to our, you just kind of have to take a deep breath for this word, even to our enemies, to do good even to them. That's what the sixth commandment is inviting us into, to do good to even our enemies, to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, this is why in Galatians 5, verse 14, Paul says this. So it'll be on the screen for you. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In other words, I can boil down all 10 commandments right here into this thing. Here's how I could boil it down. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to think that statement through with you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think there's three questions embedded into that statement. There's one is, what is love? Two is, who is your neighbor? And three is, how are we to love our neighbor? So, so those three questions. Let me just briefly kind of define that, each of those and answer each of those. What is love? Um, I don't know how many of you were at the Paul Tripp marriage conference back in uh, September, um, eight or nine months ago. Um, he, in the middle of that conference, I, I don't know what session it was, but in one of those little sessions, he defined love. And let me throw out his definition of love. This will be on the screen. Here's how he defined Christian love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being love is deserving. I'm gonna read that one more time. He says, Christian love is this. Christian love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. And let's just take that in some parts here. It's willing. In other words, Christian love flows from the heart. That it's a willing sort of love. It, it springs from the deepest places of your soul. So it's willing. Secondly, it's sacrificial. Christian love will always be costly. It will always cost you things. So it's willing and it's sacrificial and it works for the good of another. In other words, Christian love is not, let's let bygones be bygones. I hope you have a good life, good luck with it. It's not that. Christian love is, you see that person? I'm gonna make sure they have a good life. I'm gonna make sure that they're flourishing. There's a proactiveness to it. There's an active working for the good of that person. There, there's not a, you know, maybe they'll figure it out. No, it's a, I'm gonna actively work for their good. I'm gonna be a part of bringing this person good. And then he gives two things at the end of this definition. He says, it, it doesn't demand reciprocation. 
Now, that is what most of our definitions of love look like. So most of the way we love people works in this sort of an arrangement. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. And he's saying, that is not Christian love. That's not the sort of love that Jesus calls us toward. The sort of love that Jesus calls us toward is, you're not getting your your back scratched, but you will still go after and scratch the back of another. That's Christian love. It doesn't demand reciprocation, and it doesn't demand that the other person is deserving. See, most of us, when we think of of who we're going to love, the boundaries around our love, the boundaries so often around my love for people is, is this person worthy of my love? I mean, has this person earned it? I mean, does this person deserve me to love them like that? That's the boundaries that I exist with a lot of times. And Jesus is saying no to all of those boundaries. It's not if, if they're deserving. It's not a reciprocation thing. If they've done something for you, you do something. It's not any of that. It, it's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another without reciprocation, without demanding that they're a deserving person for your love. That's Christian love. Now the question becomes, who is your neighbor? In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus is asked to clarify the greatest commandments. He does that, says, it's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Then a guy asks him, well, who is my neighbor? Who is that? And he responds, Jesus responds by telling them the parable of the Good Samaritan. You may remember that parable. The point of the parable, the point of the story is Jesus is saying this about your neighbor. He is looking at the crowd and saying, there is no limit to who is your neighbor. There is no line that you can draw in your life to say, here's my neighbor, they're these people. Those people over there are not my neighbor. He's saying that that's not how how your neighbor works. Your neighbor, Jesus is saying, is anyone that I put in your path, that's your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone that I providentially place in your life, that's your neighbor. There's no line you can draw in your life. You can't draw the line of, do they look like me? Are they the same race as me? Are they the same economic class as me? Do they think like I think? There is no line that you can draw in your life. Are they a moral person? Are they a deserving person? He's saying no to all of that. Your neighbor is anyone that I put into your life. That's your neighbor. There is no limit to it. Now, when you think about who is your neighbor, let me give you four categories to think about your neighbor through. Your neighbor might be people like you, right? The people who are like you. They have the same interests. They have the same, you know, hobbies that you do, people like you. They, they, they're, they're like you in the sense of like they're similar to you and they like you in the sense of like they have like genuine affection for you. Now, here's the thing about those people. They're the easiest people to love, right? They're the ones that require nothing supernatural. Like Jesus in, in, in Matthew 5 says that even the pagans, even the godless love people like that. They're, they're the people that are easy, require nothing supernatural to love. So people, uh, you know, that, that like you. Here's the second category, not just people who like you, but people unlike you. They don't have the same hobbies you do. They don't think about life like you do. Their view of things is much different. They vote different. They, they see different. They do everything just different than you do. They're just kind of cut of a different cloth. Now, can we all agree those people are a little more difficult to love? It's harder to love that, that group of people that they're just not like you. They, they don't see the world like you see the world. But that is part of our neighbor. People that, that are like you, people who are unlike you. Third category is people who dislike you. Like your name comes up in a conversation and you just know this. Your name is not going to be treated real well. They just don't like you very much. 
They're just not very fond of you. Like it's, it, we need to see with great clarity here that that is your neighbor. People that are in that category. Not just people who like you, but people who are unlike you and people who, who dislike you. But there's one more here. It's not just those three, people who like you or unlike you and dislike you. Your neighbor has this category embedded into it as well. People who hate you. See, the difference in dislike and hate, dislike, if your name comes up, they're going to be like opportunistic in the way that they would come after you. If your name happens to come up, they're probably going to slander your name. People who hate you are not going to be opportunistic. They're going to go create their opportunities to, to not like you, right? They're going to go after you. They're going to, they're going to be proactively pursuing your ruin and destruction. That's people who hate you. And your neighbor, hear this, includes all of those people. When it comes to who we are to love, it is all of those different categories. The whole spectrum from people like you to people who hate you, Jesus is saying, that's the object of your love. That's who you get to willingly, self-sacrificially work for the good of that person. Without demand of reciprocation, right? Without like the demand that they're deserving, you get to proactively work for their good. Now, the last question is, how... Like, how do we go about loving those people? What, what does that sort of love look like? And it answers it like this, as you love yourself. Now, let's be clear here because we live in a self-esteem culture. The Bible is not about self-esteem. It's just not the way the Bible works. Like, most people will look at this commandment and say something like this, or this idea of love your neighbor as yourself and say something like this. Um, what the Bible is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is, you should love yourself more. That's what really needs to happen. You will not find that command in one place in the Bible. The Bible is not commanding you to love yourself more. The Bible is assuming that you love yourself plenty. Our problem is not a lack of self-love. You get into any of our lives, all of our problem is a lot of self-love, too much self-love. So the Bible is assuming a self-love. And it's taking that self-love and saying, okay, do you see how you love yourself? Do you see how you prioritize yourself? Do you see how you demand your rights are heard? Do you see how you make, you make sure you get fed every day? Do you see how you're working to make sure your life is okay? Do you see how you're working to make sure you have a future? Do you see how you prioritize you? Do you see how you love you? Now take that self-love and look at your neighbor and love them like that. That's how you're to love them. That is a radical call, isn't it? That is a radical call. That, that's what the sixth commandment is inviting us into. I, I love how one pastor says it. He says, this is the summation of this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's Jesus saying something like this. I want you to meet the needs of others, even your enemies, those who hate you, even those people. I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency with which you meet your own needs. That's how we're to love our neighbor. That is what the sixth commandment is inviting us into, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, I wanna spend just a few minutes here applying this. The command applied. And I wanna apply this through two questions. I want you to just consider two questions this morning when it comes to just allowing this to sink down into our lives. Here's question number one. What are you doing with your hurt? I want you to think about that. What are you doing with your hurt, we've all experienced, it's a, it's a universal human experience. There is not one person in this room who has not experienced hurt. The question is, what are you doing with it? 
Option one, we respond out of the flesh. Anger, swelling into bitterness, resentment. Left unchecked all the way to murder. Slandering people with our words. Slandering people with gossip. Slandering people with, with, with harsh, critical, uh, you know, words. Maybe I could say it this way. Think about the people that like, when, when we talk about enemies, when we talk about people who dislike you, that you instantly think of. Like when their name, let's just say you're sitting around the lunch, you know, your, your table for lunch this afternoon, and their name comes up, and you want to literally just start throwing daggers. Like you're ready to do that. Think about that person for a minute. Think about that, that hurt that you've experienced. Think about that, that person. But what, what are you doing with that? What, what are you doing with that sort of hurt that you've encountered and that you've experienced? Responding out of the flesh, responding in the spirit. Which one of those two? I was reading a story this last week and um, it was a guy telling a part of his story and the story began by him saying this. At six years old, my father murdered my mother. So it just instantly grabs you, right? And you're like, I think I want to read more of this to see how this turns out. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting to see what happened from there. He went on to live with his maternal grandparents, and he talked about how his entire family bonded around feeling like his dad was an absolute monster and their hatred of that monster. So you've got paternal grandparents, you've got him, the siblings, we've all bonded around this guy is, he is in a different category. He is a monster. And we all hate him. Their, their lives have been bonded around this sort of a belief and this sort of a view of, of his dad. And 20 years later, that was six years old, 20 some odd years later, he's in his late 20s, he is listening to a set of sermons, ironically, on the Ten Commandments. And he comes across Commandment 5 and Commandment 6 and realizes he is breaking them both. He is not honoring his mother or his, his father, and he's not honoring his father primarily because he is hating his father. And he said in that moment, God just broke something in him. God, God just sh shone a light on that. That is sin that's got to be repented of. And then he said he had no idea what that even looked like to, to begin to, to kind of, you know, take steps in that direction of fixing that. And he said in that moment he was praying, and it was like the Spirit of God came and said, you need to look your father in the eye. And that was the first step of him getting clarity, which led to him and his wife going down to the prison that his father was in, him meeting his father, seeing him for the first time in 20 some odd years, over two decades. And it began the journey down that road. And I give that illustration because I, I know that for many of us in the room, we have serious hurt. I know the stories of so many of us that we have serious hurt, bitterness, resentment. We have all of those things. And one of the things I'm praying for us right now is that, that the Holy Spirit would convict us of that, would help us see that that is not okay. The sixth commandment is saying, you can't sit in that. You can't just stay there. That the Spirit is inviting you in to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you're gonna have to proactively begin to do something about that. And here's the thing, I have no idea what that next step looks like for you. 
So I, I actually just want to take a moment here in, the, in our service, and I want you to close your eyes there where you are, and I want you to ask the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, the Spirit that lives in you, I want you to, just to ask that he would make it clear to you. What, what, what would be the next step? Beyond me owning my sin and repenting of my sin, what would be the next step of like actually re-engaging in this relationship? Just take a moment where you are, just ask the Spirit of God to clarify that. Father, would you please show us that? It's messy, it's complicated, it's hard. But Father, we want to be humble and we want to be obedient. We want the spirit of God to win in us. God, we want to be people who are quick to repent when anger and bitterness and resentment are in us and quick to take steps toward other people who have hurt us, knowing that that's how you have loved us in Jesus. So Father, thank you for grace that covers our breaking of the sixth commandment and empowers us to move into keeping it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just praying that God would give you clarity right there on that point. What does it look like for me to move toward that person? Here's the second application question, then we'll be done. What are you doing right now to help human beings flourish? This deals with the proactive side of it, right? The positive side, the do this side, the love your neighbor as yourself side. And I want to take a moment just to pry into all of our lives. I hope you'll give me permission to do that for a minute. And here's one of my burdens for us as a church family. We are in a suburban context. And if you aren't careful, here is what living in a suburban context will do to you. You will get up in the morning, you will go to work, you'll drive back into your suburban context, you will put your car in the garage, you'll do your life in your family, and you will live the rest of your life kind of with your head down, blinders on, absolutely insulated to the needs around you. And the sixth commandment is, is calling us out of that. It's inviting us into get your hands dirty in the brokenness of this world. Get your lives in the middle of brokenness. Don't insulate yourself. Don't put the blinders on. Get your lives about and in the middle of brokenness. Get, get your life involved in the brokenness of human beings, in the brokenness of lives. Get in there. Get your hands dirty in there. Now, I want to read what I would consider one of the most sobering passages in the New Testament. This is Matthew 25. It'll be on the screen for you. If you want to look at it there, you're welcome to turn to it if you like. Let me read this and we'll, we'll finish up here. Matthew 25, starting in verse 33. Now, this is Jesus talking about judgment, like the day of judgment when he is going to, to judge the world. And this is all red letter words. This is Jesus speaking here. And listen to what Jesus says. And he will place the sheep, that is those who have been redeemed by him, his sons and daughters, he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats, the people who are not redeemed, on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, now listen to his logic here, 
Okay, you're, you, you know, you're, you're going to inherit eternal life. Here's why. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? <laughs> And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Clarification. Jesus is not teaching justification by water bottle distribution. That's not what he's teaching. Here's what he is saying. When I have saved a person, redeemed a person, here's what I've done to them. I have changed them on a fundamental deep level. They were sin-centered at their core and now they are God-centered at their core. They were self-centered at their core, now they are other-centered at their core. I have fundamentally changed them. And when I have fundamentally changed a human being, here's what you can bet they'll be about. There's a direct one-to-one correlation. When I have changed a human being, redeemed a human being, they will be a people whose hands are dirty in this broken world. I mean, their their hands are involved. They are about the work of human flourishing in a world where a lot of human beings are not flourishing. Their hands are dirty in the brokenness down there. You can bet on that. That's what he's saying. Now, let me give you a quote by Michael Horton. He is a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary. Listen to how he describes kind of this dynamic. Listen, this is what I'm trying to warn you of. In a suburban world, It is so likely that you're going to so insulate your life that you're never going to be giving out water to the person in need. Never going to be addressing the hunger when it's needed. You're going to insulate yourself from that. Now listen to Michael Horton describe this and address this. And I just, I can't even describe how much I'm just hoping that we would feel what he's saying here. He says it like this. Evangelicals in other parts of the world are often baffled by the political agenda of some of their American brothers and sisters. Pro-life and pro-family, yet generally unsympathetic to the problems of the inner cities. In America, the wealthiest nation on earth, one child in five is poor. Evangelicals rightly protest the murder of the unborn and decry the silence of those who refuse to defend those who have no voice to defend themselves. Nevertheless, silence hovers over the same impassioned group when children die senselessly after they're born. We may be anti-abortion, but are we really pro-life? Selah on that. Think on that. I want to say clearly that we should be pro-abortion or anti-abortion. We should be that in very serious and profound ways. That is a breaking of the sixth commandment. That is a taking of an innocent life. And language is important here. To to be pro-abortion, you're not, it's not a pro-life issue. That's not the language. It's not a, it's not a choice issue. It's a murder issue. That's what you are, right? It's a murder issue. That's the language around abortion that should be there. It's a breaking of the sixth commandment. Um, in, In the last 50 or 60 years in America, there have been between 50 and 55 million unborn babies murdered. That is a black eye on American history, an absolute black eye. That, if you take our uh, 25 least populated states, f- there is not 55 million people in our 25 most least populated states. It's like wiping that entire 25 states off of the American map. 
219 countries in this world don't have 55 million people in it. It is a tragic thing. Okay, now here's the next thing I'm going to say, though. Being pro-life is bigger than standing against abortion. It is that, but it's more than that. Being pro-life is caring for an unborn child and caring for a born child. Caring for an unborn child that has no voice of his own and being proactively involved to make sure this child can flourish as a human being. And in a suburban culture, we are very likely to be all about this and not about that. And what this commandment is, is inviting us into is to be about both of those two things. To be about both of them. Pro-life is being about both of, that, of those. A human being actually being able to live and helping them flourish as they live. It's about both and of those. Now listen to how this passage goes on to finish in Matthew 25. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, those who are not redeemed, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Are those not sobering words? He is saying that if you don't have your life involved in the brokenness of this world, it means that you're probably not a changed man, a changed woman, a saved, redeemed man or woman. Those are sobering words. And can I tell you one of the greatest joys for me as a pastor is to watch our church family be engaged in the brokenness of this world. Like I, I love, I mentioned this in the first service, Greg Miller, he's in our first service, and he came to me um, years ago and said, we have more house than we need, and I want you to know if there's ever a moment where someone needs a place to go, life has just happened to them and they need help, we're willing to open up our house and help. I love that. We've sent multiple people into their house over the last few years. I love that. We have one of our home group that is taking a part of Midlothian that is very underprivileged, Village South, and they've just said, how can we help and engage in that brokenness? So we're gonna tutor, we're gonna invest our lives into these people. We're gonna get our hands dirty in the work of helping brokenness, of bringing about human flourishing. We've got dozens of our families in our church who have not only said we're against abortion, that we want a baby to be born, but they have also said, and we're willing to step into their lives after they're born. We're willing to actually adopt them to make sure that they can flourish as a human being. I love that. See, it's the both and. That's what God's inviting us into. I love, we've got multiple families in our church who are fostering, who kids in incredibly broken moments of their life, I mean, just unspeakable, so difficult, who are willing to step in in that moment. This is the life Laura and I have been living over the last eight months. We've got twin two-year-old boys in our house right now. It's one of the hardest things we have ever done and one of the greatest things we have ever done. But the point is, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. He's saying, come and follow me into this. You see all this brokenness? I want you to be engaged in that brokenness. I want your hands dirty in that brokenness. Come on in with me into that. That's what he's asking from us. So let's go ahead and pray. And I wanna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to, to help and to clarify these things. It's just there where you are. I, maybe you could just start by asking the Spirit of God to speak to you right now to clarify 
what it is that he would want you to feel deep in your bones right now in this moment. You know, when I think about this commandment, the sixth commandment, I think it's really trying to show us ultimately, trying to reveal to us two things, ultimately. It's trying to show us that we are far worse off. We're, we're a much bigger sinner than we first thought. It's showing us who we really are. I mean, who of us can stand here and say, I am unscathed by this commandment? I have kept this commandment. I've never murdered it in my heart. I've never murdered with my words. I've, I've always loved my neighbor as a... You'd be a joke to say that. There's not one of us that could say that in this room. It's showing us just how far we have missed the mark of God's perfect standard. It's showing us what we really are, that we are much worse off than we first thought. But it's also showing us that we are much more loved by God than we first thought. That God would take us murderers. And rather than murdering us, would send his son Jesus to live among us. Die on a cross for us. That, that God Almighty would allow his son to be murdered by us. And yet the last thing Jesus says, one of his last words, our, our Father, please forgive them. Man, what a God we have. Who would be so kind and so gentle and so gracious toward us. That he would know all of our murderous thoughts. He has heard all of our murderous words. And he has seen all the murder of our hands. And he says, I still want you. I still love you. So there are some of us here who for the first time need to respond to the good news of Jesus. And here's what that would look like this morning. It would be owning your murderous heart. Owning the fact that, that this commandment is showing you just how sinful you are. It's owning that. And then it's turning from that. It's, it's turning from that sin and throwing your life upon Jesus. Upon his life, death, and resurrection. It's holding your life up to God and saying, God, here I am, save me. And when you come like that with the empty hands of faith, God Almighty stands ready and willing to pardon all of your sin. And for the rest of your days, for all eternity, see you as perfected in Jesus. So if you have never responded to God like that, this would be your moment to do that. After I pray, we're gonna have a few people over at the uh, prayer table and I'd invite you to come over and to, to pray with them. We'd love to celebrate with you in that. We'd love to start taking the next steps with you in that. And for others in the room, if you're, if you're in Christ, if you're a son or daughter of his, this commandment is pressing us. What, what are we doing with the hurt in our life? I just can't imagine that there's not many of us who need deep repentance right now in light of how we are harboring bitterness and resentment how our words are harming and maiming others. And this would be your time to respond to God. We get to celebrate that God's amazing grace covers our sin. And God's amazing grace empowers a new way of living. Some of us need a fresh wave of God's grace right now. For others, it's, it's thinking through, what does it look like for my hands to be dirty in the brokenness of this world? I want to invite you into thinking about that. 
It's not okay to live an insulated life. This commandment is drawing us toward Jesus who is down with the downcast, who is down there with the broken. It's inviting us to to be willing to get our hands down into those issues and that mess. So God, right now, would you clarify for us what next steps would be right now in this room, what repentance would look like? God, would you gift us with tears over this? And God, would you empower us? Would you, by your grace, move us in to a proactive keeping of the sixth commandment, to loving our neighbor as ourself? And God, we know that for that to happen, we need you. So Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.